Blackbox Radio. Welcome to part two of the story of Maryland's first exoneree, Leslie Voss. If you haven't heard part one, you definitely want to check that out. You can find it at blackboxradio.com. It's published everywhere that you might be listening now, so make sure you check that out so that you can be up to speed on this incredible story. We're going to resume the story today as a young, a 17-year-old, Leslie Voss has been wrongfully convicted of armed robbery, and he's at the beginning of a 20-year sentence in the state penitentiary. Former Southern basketball, Southern high school basketball player received 20 years for armed robbery. It was in the oh. news American and in the Sun paper. And, and, and you I'm, were an athlete, so this was news. Yeah, it was news. I was played a week several times during the course of me playing ball in school. You know, they used mm. to have what they call player of the week. Yes. I was I was written up as just like Skip Wise, I was written up, you know, because me and Skip played in the same caliber. We played the same league. So uh, your whole athletic career was stumped. All, that, all, of, all my dreams and aspirations is gone, me, you know? But these mm. guys on death row used to talk to the younger guys and talk, you know, they would say, sure, you know, what's going on with your case? What you do? How did they do this? And when I started talking about what was happening in my case, they would say, well, you need to learn what was done to you and how they did it to you. And this guy, I'll never forget, he was on death row, he called him Pipe Leg. He threw a book through the opening down and told me, he said, take that and learn it. He said to me, what they did to you was railroaded you, sorry. He said, they knew that you didn't know anything about the law. He said, first off, and he started telling me different things in regards to law. But when he gave me the law book, it was Article 27 of the Annotated Code for Maryland, right, which is the, uh, the criminal procedures manual for the state of Maryland. And I started studying that. How long into your sentence did this happen? Like, how long was it before you started having these interactions? To be honest with you, like maybe two months after I was there is when I started. Okay. When I got that book from him. When he, cause what happened, we was in a conversation, they was talking about this, the, the, the television was right there on the flash. And they had a little sitting area where when they let us out for exercise, we could go sit there and play cards and watch TV. I don't play no cards. I don't want to watch no TV. I want out of here because I don't have no business being here. You know, that's my thoughts. That's my feeling. That was my whole focus. I ain't trying to meet nobody, be all right with nobody or none of that. All I want to do is get out of here and live my life like I was trying to do. This is something that I was not for or knew anything about. I didn't, I wasn't trying to be friendly Freddie and none of that. I mean, that, those, that's, that was my attitude and my feelings about this because I'm in somewhere that I don't know nothing about, you know? I, I don't know anything about the procedure, nothing here, you know? So when somebody tell me something that, and show me that I need to look at this a little different, my mindset is saying, I'm going to try to do what I can to help myself because those people that was paid to do it did not help me. They are the ones that put me here, you know? Hmm. Right. And uh, I, started, I started learning the law and obtaining documents. I started gathering all the documents and stuff. 
sending out for the original police officer report, which is the report that's written by the officer right then and there when the crime happened. The okay. identification of the three suspects that the man gave from the get-go. He stated one person was 5'11", about 5'11", with a real close-cut haircut. That was just supposed to have been me. Here it is three months, three and a half, four months later, I got a full head of hair, bush. You know, different discrepancies and stuff that I'm seeing and everything. Then what really got me was when I found out that the investigating officers that was in charge of investigating the, the actual robbery, these officers were uh, the handler of a particular guy that ended up being the person I was mistaken for. He was an informant for them. I learned that these three men were in jail together at Baltimore City Jail at a drug program they call a cash program. The three oh, men who, who did the robbery, you're saying? What three the men? The men who did the robbery, the ones that admitted committing the robbery, were in a drug program over Baltimore City Jail they called the cash program at that time. They came home on a weekend and committed the robbery. Mm. They were going to return back to the jail, but they ended up getting arrested. Okay. So they did arrest them for the robbery. They got arrested for the robbery the same night the robbery happened because the testimony, the identification from, from Mr. Chester and Mr. Willie Adams led to their arrest. They they seen they went to the area to meet the man that they that worked with them and they drove back up to the, the Chai Hill location where they were supposed to make the delivery. They observed three men get into a yellow Volkswagen with black stripes on it. They followed it, wrote the tag number down, stopped at the gas station as they were leaving and called 911. And all points bulletin was put out for that vehicle. That vehicle was stopped. And the two men that was arrested in the vehicle the same night the robbery happened admitted they committed the robbery. Also, two was arrested. You was the third link. I was supposed to be the third one. Got it. But, but now Mr. I'm getting it. That now you understand why Mr. Now Chester, I understand. They rested two and one was missing, and you were the missing tall guy with the short hair. Right. That's what I was yeah. Right. Got it. So, man, and let me the, let me just I don't want to brush past this very interesting detail. Okay. Who's gonna rob somebody and then use a yellow car with a black stripe oh. on it as a getaway car? Only a drug addict. <laughs> let me, let me Who say does something. that? <laughs> it's not hard to identify. Only That's, somebody coming for jail for the weekend. <laughs> bring, after after getting the documentation, after getting all the documents and looking okay. at the stuff, and then you know the looking at the ethical law and all. You gotta remember, I'm still in the Maryland State Penitentiary, right? Yep. Where people got the death penalty. Everybody in there. They call my sentence baby life. That's what that's that's what my my sentence was considered baby life because when when you got a twenty, right? <laughs> they said you're gonna serve fourteen years nine months on it. 
if you don't make parole. Okay. Wow. That's okay. if you don't make parole. So okay. to be dealing with hearing these kind of things and then reading the information that I'm getting, you know, I'm starting to become conscious of the law. I'm becoming conscious of the system, how the system is, because I'm also starting now, I've gotten to a point where, you know, I, I'm learning enough to work with other individuals with their stuff and help them get their sentence reduced and all that kind of stuff. But that's where I turned 18 at, right there at the Maryland State Penitentiary in cell A125. And I'll never forget the night that when, when 12 o'clock came and my birthday came, I remember, you know, sitting in that cell and I could hear the sounds of people outside across the street on, on, on uh, Forest Street. You know, there's houses across the street for the penitentiary down there. And okay. those people would be outside. They would be calling over to the guys in the jail. The guys actually used to have, they like they had girlfriends. They would go meet at certain times to talk to you. And I used wow. to hear these things. You know what I'm saying? Wow. <laughs> Stop and think. I ain't had no girlfriend. I ain't mm -hmm. had no friends. I mean, the friends I had, we were kid friends. I'm in a whole new environment now. I'm in an environment where niggas is killing each other, you know, robbing each other, stabbing each other, you know, sitting at the table, somebody get mad at somebody else and hit him, hit him in the head with a tree and split his head open. And I'm, I'm just 17, getting ready to turn 18 in this kind of environment. There's a whole, whole different attitude that you have to take on, you know, either become or or subject yourself to the humiliations that people put you through. And I made it clear, only thing that I was concerned with was trying to get out. I didn't have no time to be involved. I don't drink no jump steady, which is the homemade wine. I don't smoke no weed. I don't do nothing. All I'm trying to do is find a way out. The period of time being in prison at penitentiary I've run into conflict with a fellow because a dude stole something from me. We had a confrontation. I ended up trying to stab him, and they sent me to Hagerstown up in uh, MC, MCI-H. They called the old jail. And while I was up there in the old jail, um, I used to do a lot of legal work for a lot of people. A lot of guys that have n names and histories in the state of Maryland. People outside the state of Maryland may not know a lot about them, but they heard their names. Peanut King, Dennis Wise, uh, Liddy Jones, Laurel Melvin, all those people. I know them people. I know them people. I grew up in the penitentiary with them people. Those people raised me. Those are the people that taught me different things and showed me that these people didn't care nothing about me because they did this with knowledge, right? And that's, that, that I became another militant type individual, you know? Uh, my godfather was a fellow by the name of Shorty Bukes, Clinton Bukes. Used to have the Pennsylvania Avenue reunions and stuff in Baltimore, you know what I'm saying? 
You know? So, I mean, I'm not, I, I mean, people who are in Maryland hear these names know who I'm talking about. They know who you're talking about, okay. Because, you know, I, I did what I did, you know, to try to prove that what was done was unjustly done to me, but I never expected it to continue on to this point in my life now. Okay, well, let me ask you, let me, let me get some context. Okay. So you're, um, you're in prison. Right. Um, you're coming across Baltimore legends because they're in prison too. They're legends now, but they were actually fostering you throughout your, your time. So you're now really delving into your case and compiling information and right. finding out what happened to you. What year are we in jail? Where you finally, we're like, now, I know what's going now, on. We're now into like 78. So and that's, I, that's three then, years in. And I get, a, I get a letter from this lawyer by the name of Gerald Creep. Gerald Creep. K-R-O-O-P. And he advised me that my appeal was denied. A what private a, attorney? A private a pro attorney. A pri yes, a private attorney. My mom, she paid. She paid this attorney, Gerald Crook, to do my appeal. She never told me. She never explained to me that she had got me another lawyer or none of that, right? Oh, your mother did this. So that's what we got to make sure. So your mother retained another attorney for you. She paid the attorney. I never knew that she had actually retained her services or anything. He never notified me that, that she was that paid him to represent me on appeal or anything. He wrote me when I was in Hagerstown and explained to me that my appeal was denied and that he wished me all the success, you know, in my future endeavors and so forth. And I was crushed. I was totally crushed. I wrote him a letter back explaining how can you file an appeal for me and not come to see me to confer with me about what happened at the at this case, with this case. You know, it was other issues that he he filed. I have a copy of it. It's a one-page thing. You know, she paid him five thousand dollars then. So at that point, you had already, by this time, you had already started gathering new information that could have right. been useful if right. they had talked to you. By the time you found out about the appeal, you had already started. And had they conferred with you, you would have had information that would have been useful in the appeal process. First off, the first and foremost thing that I, that I wanted to uh, present was the fact that I was a juvenile charged as a, I was charged as an adult, but I was released as a juvenile. And then I never received what they call a reverse waiver for me to be uh, actually adjudicated in the uh adult system there's a there's a process that has to be done that uh nobody is doing that they didn't do in my pro in my case i also filed for a uh the public defender's office contacted me and said they were filing a post-conviction petition on my behalf when i met with them i explained to them the circumstances the different things that i wanted to bring up in it 
They told me that those issues that I brought couldn't be raised now because they was lost since they wasn't raised on appeal. I couldn't raise them then in court. When I explained to them that I had documentation to show that Mr. Conrad had waived a hearing, it was a hearing held before I was ever went to trial up in, it was a North Avenue court, I believe, in the district court. And it was for what they call a preliminary hearing. I found out after being convicted that when you charge by way of criminal information, it's mandatory that you have a preliminary hearing. It's actually a constitutional guarantee that you have to have one because it's not a grand jury indictment, okay? There was a hearing held and Mr. Conrad waived my appearance at that hearing, at that preliminary hearing. At that preliminary hearing, had he not waived my, my rights, I would have been allowed, I would have known then that that robbery happened in 1974 and I would have had the opportunity to get witnesses and all together to show that I lived, that I, you understand? Yeah, so this is why you did not know the process because he waived the hearing. That right. would have told you the whole process. Right. Yeah. Okay, but this is but you're not finding this out. Wait a minute, I got it. But you're not finding this out until you're in the seventh, eighth year of your prison term. Right. You're now, finally finding out what actually happened. The yeah. Okay, got got it. Wow. So you're yeah. finally finding out that he waived the hearing that you cons your constitutional right, and that yeah. that is why you were in. That's why you didn't know that you were going to trial that day without right. any representation, right? Yeah. right. And this That's is all Robert, Robert Conrad. And, right. and so this is why they held up him not being an effective lawyer. What did you say they, they held up? That is why they, they call it. They call it ineffective assistance of counsel. Ineffective they, they, assistance and, of counsel. And the public defender that I had did not want to put that argument in there because see, then that would have made them force them to overturn that case. That's mm. a violation. That's not something, I don't care, the dumbest lawyer in Merlin would know that, you know? Because- so, what, Wow, I was, so I was, this public defender again, the, he still does not want to go after the real issue. He didn't want to go after the real issue because of the clout that Mr. Conrad carried. Mr. Conrad was a he was a bar council member for the Attorney Grievance Commission that made determinations when other uh, other lawyers have violated the code yep. of professional responsibilities. And the so you don't want to make him angry because you're a lawyer too. And right. if he's angry, he can come and get you, and you can't work. Yeah. So you got to go. You won't go against Brother Conrad. Yeah, okay. So, so we're hearing a little bit of a <laughs> a little bit of relationship and job security and membership having his privileges, all of this stuff all rolled into one. And you still a young, you still in your early twenties. So right. let me ask you a question. And then your experience within that time, did you feel that a lot of other black men were going through the same type of? I knew it. I knew it because I've been dealing, I've, I've been in, I've been in the Merrill House Corrections. I've been in Hagerstown. I've been in, there was two jails. There was only, three jails in Hagerstown at that time. That's like, I don't know, it's like maybe six or seven of them up there now. But 
It was only three jails up there in Hagerstown at the time. I've been in all three of them. MCI, the old jail, they call the Pennant Farm. Then there's the MCTC, which is the Metropolitan Transitional Center. I was there. That was a training program. Then there was what they called the Butler Building, which was a pretrial release program. I was there also in that program, right? You know? So what I'm saying is I, I started learning and getting all the information, and I'm saying that they don't want to address this issue because it strikes not just at that attorney, but also it shows, you know, the biasness that you see in the system. The system has now is being exasperated because it continuously is working in this manner and and locking up black bodies. Is that what you're saying? True. That's all they was doing during that time. Was locking black bodies up. All all you have to do is look at now. They have a thing they call the Unger Group. The Unger Group is a group of men and, and some women that were released within the last, I think they started getting released in maybe 2012, 2013. There was a there was a court order that Maryland had to release over 250 people because of faulty jury instructions. So it was one judge that that gave faulty instructions, instructions. and those instructions was the abatement of all of these convictions. Those men and women were the people who were confined with me during that period of time back in the Maryland State Penitentiary. Okay. I understand. I understand. Uh, so if you were in there, you probably would have been out with the Unger group. So let but let's go back to you're still in your first 10 years. So right. we're like in your seventh year. Um, you got the letter from Mr. Crop Croup, Gerald Croup, saying that you were denied. So right. then what went on after this denial? I, I was uh, playing ball one day and I came in from the courtyard and a fellow came up to me and asked me, he said, you the kid, you the guy who used to live in Westport, you Leslie, right? I said, yeah. He said, uh, you know, uh, my stepbrother was the one they mistake you for, right? Mm. So I'm like looking at him. I don't, usually, I don't usually interact with a whole bunch of dudes when it comes to talking about my case because I know the games some guys play. So I, I'm like, yeah, so I said, what's your brother's name? He said, Bucky Nut. Bucky what? Bucky Nut. K-N-U-T-T. Bucky Nut. So I said, uh, I see, I heard that. I said, but I wasn't sure. He said, I got a photograph, man, of him when it was taken you know, back when he was in the cast program over the jail. Now, when he said it, I've said, I know this dude got to know what's going on. Because you know about that. That detail. After I was- too many details, yeah. Right, you know? So I said, this guy got to know. But I had already been told by other people that had been locked up that this boy Bucky Nut was the one that they had mistaken me for. But I could never get no valid paperwork or information to connect them with these other two guys, right? These other two men, one man was sentenced to five years. The other man got five years probation. And the only thing I knew about them was the names that was on my papers. I want you to know in all honesty, every jail that I went in, I made sure that I got in a clerk position 
to try to find out if he was inside that jail, you know? But I, I never, it. I never, I never met these men to this day, Sister Queen. If they walked to this door now, I wouldn't know them. Okay? You wouldn't know them. So you never but, met that crew and you never met, met Bucky Nut. You never met Bucky well, Nut neither. Wait a minute, wait a minute, stop. Let me go oh, back. Okay. When I, when, I got out, when I got out, it was when I met Mr. Bucky Nut. And it wasn't good, okay? Okay, I just want to know right doing this part. We, yeah. we still want to stay here. So but, uh, then you you then you didn't know any of these guys, and he's telling you that that's his stepbrother. He said right? he was his stepbrother. He gave me. He said when we go in, he said, "Let me run to my my." He slept in the dormitory back in Seat Arm and Jessup Cut. I was in Jessup and a house corrections in Jessup. He said, "Let me get the picture. I got a picture. I'm gonna give you." Have your lawyer take it to the victim and let the victim look at it. So I'm like, yeah, okay, all right, whatever. So, but I but but I don't know. It's it's, it's this is another thing. So I, I run back to the dorm with him. I get the picture. I'm I I sleep on the west wing in a cell by myself. So I I'm in my cell and I'm think trying to think what I can do. So I write a letter. They got this guy. They have no election coming up and they got a black guy that's running for the state Baltimore city state's attorney's position and everybody inside the whole division of corrections is talking about this man named kurt smokes who is running for election against bill swisher who was a uh, we know what he was but they don't acknowledge it and that's how all of us end up getting convicted like we were. Wait a minute. What's the other guy, Bill? Switzer. Switzer. Okay, so people who are going to see. Switzer. Like Swedish okay. Switzer. Yep. His name is William Switzer. They call him Bill Switzer. Okay, William Switzer. So this is, he was the current state's attorney? He was the current, he was the current state's attorney at that time. And Kurt Let me Smoke ask a question. I'm finished. Wait a minute. So he's a current current estates attorney, but you said because people who not living in Maryland don't know this story. You say we all know who he is. Who is he? Why? No. Why are you saying that? Bill Switzer. About about Bill Switzer. Yeah, you said we know who he and, is. And, I mean, if you anybody who has a, a is old enough to remember. The politics back then when William Donald Schaefer was the mayor, mm -hmm. uh, before he became mayor, when he was on the, uh, what's that, city council and all that, you know, mm -hmm. anybody that's familiar with with that, that regime from that time up until Schaefer's administration was familiar with the attitude about Bill Swisher when it concerns- can you, put, can you put some dates on that? Yeah, approximately. Oh, uh, you're talking about, I think Schaefer was in office from 72. He was, when he mm -hmm. first started in the city council, I believe in 70, 72, 73, 74, he was still in the city council. Then he became the mayor, uh, I guess from 74, 75, 70. He, he actually served two terms as mayor uh, in Baltimore. 
and you were in prison some of huh? his terms. You were in prison. I was in prison. I wrote safer. Some I of his terms. Okay. I was, I, was, I was up under safer number. I was in prison with safer numbers when he was mayor. He was mayor, but, and Bill Swisher was the state's attorney. Was the state's attorney that okay. that that safer appointed that he that that they worked together. You know? Okay, and the climate in Baltimore City was they was collecting black bodies and putting them in jail. That's how they were doing. That's exactly what they were doing at that time. And imprisoning people. Imprisoning like people. That's okay. why so, that's why you have so many the, the, the history shows that's why you have so many cases that were reversed and uh now you have all these wrongful imprisonment cases coming out in Baltimore. Look at the period of time that the convictions happened and look at the the people that was involved in it at that back in that era. Okay. Same time. Same time, same people. Right. Okay. Same, same people. So Okay, so I, now Kurt Smoke is running for office as state's attorney. And he and he won. Won. Okay. And he won. When he won. he won, I wrote him a letter. And I explained to him, I was explained to him what had happened back then, who was involved in it, and you know, I'm thinking that this man, his views was totally different than what he showed. You know, I had hope that a brother would see better what was done than what I had been subjected to with the court system, the uh, Attorney Greaves Commission, the mm -hmm. Public Defender's Office, all at that time, okay? okay. Now, I get a letter from a man by the name of Clifton J. Gordy telling me that there's nothing that Mr. Smoke can do in regards to my case. Don't write him no more. Clifton J. Gordon? Gordy. Gordy, got it. And he, is, he worked for Smoke. He was, he was Kurt Smoke's chief assistant. Got it. He was his second in command. Chief assistant, he said, don't write no more because there's nothing they can do. No there's, nothing, there's nothing that we can do for you. Contact the public defender's office. So okay. in 1980, I wrote a letter to the public defender's office asking them would they take a photograph of the victim, take a photograph to the victim of a man that I learned I had been mistaken for. They wrote me a letter, Mr. D. Oh, have mercy. I cannot think of this man's name right now. But the guy that's in charge of the public defender's office wrote me back and explained to me that because they represented me at one post-conviction one post-conviction hearing, they uh, cannot represent me again and that I would have to do it either pro se or get an attorney to file another post-conviction petition. They mm. couldn't help me. They, they congratulated me on all my efforts and so forth. I said, okay. Well, stop for a second, because I'm trying to, it's, it's a lot. So you now, taught, you, you, Mr. Gordy says, don't write. Then you, you and contact the public defender's office. Right. So you again 
contact the same office that you had the issue with before yeah. in the appeal that did right. not give you the service that you should have gotten. Right. So now you have to go back to them. So you write right. a letter in 1980 and they right. tell you, we can't help you because what we did for you before, which you didn't do, but we still can't help you at this point, but congratulations for being so smart. Am yeah. I right? And these are lawyers uh, and surveyors of the system. They particularly said that what you did was admirable with the what you're collecting and compiling of information, but it's nothing they can do. You gotta you gotta nothing work on it yourself. Do. Yeah, because I wouldn't I, the photograph, I was afraid to send the photograph out to them because I felt like I only have one copy. This is okay. the original camera. This is a Polaroid camera take took picture, you know? And I don't have another one of like this. And if this if this victim sees this photograph and identify and somebody lose it, then I'm up I'm up the creek. I have nothing else. But what I did was when they told me that they couldn't help me, I filed in federal court because I had already exhausted all my state remedies. Okay. I didn't have to go through the appeal process and all that all over again because I had, when I did the post conviction and it was denied, <clears throat> the next step was for me to file a habeas court petition in federal court, in federal district court. And I got a hearing. And when I went down there for the hearing, I actually put on there the photograph, the information about the photograph that, that they refused to assist me to have the, have the victim view the photograph. And the federal court judge, he, in the hearing, he stated to me that he, his hands was bound because I added that last amendment about the photograph to it and the state of Maryland had not had the opportunity to Resolve. Right? Yeah, so I had to go back to the state. I had to go back to the state to get the state to review it. And if they denied it, he, he said that I could refile because he dismissed it without prejudice so that I could come back to them if they denied me. And they were going to grant me the relief that I sought. So let me ask you a question. If you file that, that photograph so they can review it, who has... Who owns it? Do they give it back to you immediately? No, they don't. No, they don't. No, they don't. They keep it. They so keep you, you don't have that photograph anymore? You don't have the photograph no more. I, what I did, so when I got back to the State Department, when I, when I went back to the state, I explained to the, the person that was in charge of the Public Defender's Office that I had a photograph. And I needed one of their investigators to take the photograph to the victim to show the victim the picture of the man I learned I had been mistaken for. I gave that information to them in 1980. They told me they couldn't help me. 1982, when I was forced to go back to them by the district, by the federal courts, they took the photograph. It took two years for them to actually send the, the investigator out with the photograph. And then I was in the Maryland House Corrections 
No, wait, 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 wait. 19, slow down. So in 1982, you, you went back to the state. They had the photograph. They did not go to the actual person to 1984? Right. Yeah, 1984. So it took two years. Yeah. And then with the, the, the victim. With the I actual photograph to go to the victim. I got a letter from the public defender's office with a motion in the in the envelope with a letter explaining to me that my my hard work and perseverance paid off. The victim positively identified the man on the photograph as being the man that actually robbed him. He and when is this? 1984? 84. He 84. even had the same shirt on. That's what they said in the letter. Right? Wow. You have that letter? I don't have that. I don't have, no, not with me. I'm just saying. Okay. That's none of my business, but I just want to know. Okay, so a motion. So they filed a motion saying that you have proved your case. So what does that mean? What does that now, mean? Well, now, well, it means that now we got to go through the rambling with the state of Maryland because they're not going to own up to it. That's what it actually meant, to be honest. Because that's what it ended up being. Then I got a, a, a I got a visitor, a, a, an attorney visit from a man by the name of Kurt Smokes. Mm. And what year was this? Nineteen eighty four or nineteen eighty five? This is all in eighty four. This is in the beginning of eighty four. All right. So the you telling me the sitting state's attorney comes to visit you? in the Maryland House of Corrections and told me that he knew I was getting ready to go up for my fourth parole hearing. And if, if, if I did not accept the deal with him to plead no low contending to one count of the original information. Wait, 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 what does that mean? Wait, wait, slow down before you go to no, no, low. What is it? No what? No low, no low contending. Okay. No longer contending means I will not contest. It's a Latin. Mm. Means I will not contest. And okay. they will reduce the time served. And I asked him there, I couldn't believe I said, him, what about the fact that y'all know I didn't bribe this man, that I've been innocent in prison? He looked at me like that didn't mean nothing. He said, his position as state's attorney is to protect the state in the city from being liable for lawsuit. Hmm. I shook my head. I said, can I believe this? And I asked him, I, and I asked him, got up and walked out. So, so they went to, came to the Pen Maryland State Penitentiary. No, they came to the Maryland House of Correction. I'm sorry, the Maryland House of Correction. The state's, the sitting state's attorney came to visit you, Kurt Smoke, <clears throat> to give you a deal to file, no. No, he wanted me to plead guilty. Plead, plead guilty so, to one count. Take, take the agreement, take the agreement to plead guilty to one, to have it be entered as a no low contending um, verdict, meaning I will not contest, but the judge will find me guilty of it because they had enough evidence to earn the conviction. Right. And that means you could not then sue, you could not then go forward because the state would not be liable 
Yeah, the I state would not be liable after that. Am I clear? You're right. You're right. Okay. That, that, so what that, happened? Did you sign that? Huh? So what happened? So what happened now? I got up and left. Did not sign it. He explained to me that that Judge Robert Bell was a real dear friend to him. He would have Judge Bell deny my petition, my pending petition before them. And when he said Judge Bell, it like really shook me because I'm like, damn, you gonna go after the judge? You know? So I wrote a letter to Judge Bell and I sent it to him. And on October, the 16th, 1984, they transported me from the Maryland House Corrections to the Circuit Court for Baltimore City for the hearing. That's Did October, you know, October you know 16th. Huh? Did you know that it was going to be a hearing? You said they transferred. You, this was this wasn't. No, they transported me there. No, they, didn't, they don't tell you when they're going to they're gonna have you bring you to court. No. Oh, they just they, bring you. Oh, I didn't know. Wow. Okay. You know what I'm no, no, because I, they try to use that as a, as a means to say that, uh, you know, it could be a breach of security. Some people could be waiting and all that kind of stuff. So they don't they, tell it. Okay, got it. Yeah, you know, like some TV, some TV show or something. But in yeah. all reality, they know the deal. Ain't nobody trying to break nobody else out of no prison. Not you know? out of no court. <laughs> not, going not, to court. Not, no. not, not expecting to do nothing. But no. when we get there, it's a they they held me in the, the holding area at the circuit court in the Mitchell building from they got me there like maybe after 7 30 in the morning. I sat in that cell, that holding cell all day. It was it was filled up when I got there. When I when they actually called my case, it was after five o'clock in the afternoon. Wow! They carried me into a courtroom. They walked me through the court through the courthouse with the shackles and chains on, all the way up to this little courtroom on on the Fayette Street side of the courthouse. You come down the steps in that door right there on Fayette Street, and you swing right and right, and it's a little courtroom that was a juvenile office, a juvenile hearing office. In that office, there was Kurt Smokes, Judge Robert Bell, there was Clifton J. Gordon. There was a lady there that I did not know at the time, uh, the court stenographer, Mm -hmm. They had assigned this guy to represent my represent me. His name was Timothy P. Knepp, K N E P P. K N E P P. Knepp, Timothy Paul Knepp. That was his real name. And he was the public defender. He was assigned. He was assigned to represent me. Assigned for representation. At, okay. At my petition that I had filed, okay, they they had they had assigned him to represent me, and okay. he came to me to tell me that before the hearing, Judge Bell wanted to talk to me, right? And I was like, oh boy, what, you know? But he waited 
I'm glad he did. He waited because he put it on the record. And I and I respect him. I had nothing but the uh, let me tell you something. I don't love no other man. I love Judge Bell. Okay. Because he I, I I say this, he got he got my respect, my full respect. He said to me on the record, he said, Mr. Smoke, yes, he is the state's attorney and he is a friend. But I'm not gonna I'm not gonna allow him or anybody else to sway my my decision and your case. He said, Mr. Vass, you don't have to be afraid. Present your evidence. Mm. That's all he said to me, and that that was good enough for me. Mm -hmm. The victim was brought in and put mm -hmm. on the stand. Mr. Frederick again. The victim. Mr. Frederick, go, right? Go to Frederick Chester. Yeah, Joseph Frederick Chester. That's right. He okay. got on the stand, and Mr. Smoke started questioning him, and he def the, the thing he said was that I don't care what you do. I made a mistake, and I'm sorry. Then he said that the guy that I looked just, he said, that kid there looked just like the man when I identified him. But I know that's not him, and I'm sorry. He then said that he didn't care what Mr. Smoltenham did by threatening him. He was he made a mistake. He made an honest mm -hmm. mistake, boy. So he said, wait a minute. So he said that on record. He, that said he, he doesn't he care said, about the threats from the states, the current state's attorney, which was Smoltenham. Yeah, Mr. Smoltenham threatened him to say, to charge him with perjury because, her, because of his first identification of me and they was going to use his very first identification i get it as perjury against him sure okay. sure and he said he didn't care he made a mistake he sighed then uh judge judge bell then said well leslie i'm gonna grant you court release your court release he said, and I'm gonna order that you be released by tomorrow morning by eight o'clock. If not, then the, the state of Maryland is gonna be uh, penalized with a, with a a judgment, a financial judgment. They have to pay like that, right? Oh, uh, you was gonna be out. Trust me. <laughs> yeah. So he said, if the, the reason why we can't release you right now is because the administrative offices is closed and it was late in the evening. I've never been in a, I've never seen that happen ever in Can my I ask life. A question? Do you think they did that and left you in the cell all day? As I your know last that. that was your last punishment for getting ready to get exonerated. Do you think? Yeah. I really feel that they did that because they didn't want, want it known what they actually had did in that court at that time. You gotta remember, I didn't want anybody else to hear, any of the other people to hear. There nobody else to know nothing about none of that. Let me share something with you. Even to this day, I've never got a copy of that transcript. Wow. And I've tried in all kind of manners. 
the lady that did the transcription, I contacted her and sent her a $300 money order to purchase that transcript and never got it, right? Yeah. The funding was sent back to me, you know? Yeah. So, okay, so you never I received mean, the, 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 the received uh, transcript it. in a small courtroom in the back with all of these important people, so that transcript can't be found. That can't, they cannot be found. Amazing. Now, I've, been, I've been to the archives in Annapolis. It's not I've there? I've been everywhere. I've been to every place that I know of that's supposed to have a copy. The state, the state prosecutor's office is supposed to have a copy of it. They, they, I ain't got no response from them about that. What I tried to get from my records after I got released was a copy of that, of that transcript because it spoke clearly everything that happened there. You were released. The next day, on time, of course, because um, the state of Maryland is not going to pay more money. So they're going to release you on time. But when right. you get out and you're a free citizen, you cannot find a, the, the very transcript that released you. And right. that's what I'm saying. All you have is the signed paperwork that you were released. Right. So that says, that speaks volume. Like, where is the, where's the transcript? Because that's yeah. public knowledge. That's taxpayers' right. time and money. So that should be something that's filed somewhere. It's not in the archives, you said, right? In the archives. None of those I, places. I, before, before it even got this far, system, when I come home October the 17th, 1984, within that week, I actually had, had asked the court for a copy of that transcript, and nobody responded. Nobody could find it. Nobody could and, locate it. And we're in 2020. You still don't have it. It shows that day in the court docket that my case was held and concluded, mm -hmm. and I was granted a court release. And that's oh, what shows. It should be a transcript. I know. I know. Right now, we are at the point in the story where you've been released, and right. I want you to take uh, uh, take a couple minutes and just kind of describe your personal. Uh, the challenges personally that you were dealing with during the initial weeks and months after you released? Just what was going on in your personal life? I, when, when Judge Brown said that he was, uh, that I was going to be released the next morning, to be honest with you, I was really, really scared because I didn't know what I was coming out into after 10 years being locked up. But that, that's really how I was really feeling. Happy, <laughs> overjoyed, everything, excited, but fearful. Got when it. I got released, I remember I was standing, they released me, I was standing out front of the Maryland House Corrections, and they changed, they had shift change. You know, they released me before the eight to four shift came on. I got released like 7.45, somewhere around that time, and I was standing out there, I was trying to use the the uh, pay phone that was on the wall outside the institution right there to call my mom to let her know that I had gotten released, right? But to be honest with you, my relationship with my family was strange, you know? When I got released, I called my mom to tell her that I got a court release. 
And she said, they didn't give you no money, catch no bus. <laughs> and I was like, mama, these people just released me. I, I finally proved that these people was wrong, right? And I said, uh, I found a law that I could use to make them pay me. And she says, boy, you just got released. I'm gonna take you to Child Hill Social Service. They'll give you a check and some food stamps. And I said, what? I said, Mama, so these people, I, I said, I have, a, I have something I can make them people pay me for the time I was confined. And she said to me, you know, if uh, you don't do what I ask you to do about going and getting some help, getting uh, check and food stamps from them, you can't stay in my house, you know? Mm. And I was totally crushed. Wow. Ah, oh, man. Wow. But uh, mm. I remember, you know, I stayed there all day waiting for her to come. Finally, when she came, because she explained to me that uh, her friend, her husband, that she had just married, he had uh, health issues, serious health issues, where he had been diagnosed with some kind of cancer or something and he was had a trek in his throat and she was still working and she was still taking care of him and I, I started recognizing that she had a lot of stress and stuff on her and you know here it is I'm 28 years old I just come out here and you know I'm not trying to be a bird I've been independent and doing for myself for the period of time that I was in prison. Financially, my mom would send me money if I asked for it. She would visit me if I if I asked for visits and stuff. But you know, It was, it was hard, it was really hard oh. to know that I spent 10 years in jail for getting a newspaper, you know, and uh, then to have this, you know, this, this man that supposed to represent the judicial system that was like me that I thought, you know, understood the injustice that had been done to not just myself, but to other individuals all over Maryland, right? Come out here and be treated just like what you went through had no meaning, no substance, has a, a, a very negative effect upon you. I had a lot of animosity and bitterness within me towards the Maryland judicial system, mainly the individuals that were main players involved in my case, like Mr. Smoke, the uh, secretary for the public defender's office at that time, uh, the judge, 
the, the finding out about this boy Bucky Nut was an informant for the very detective that was in charge of investigating the robbery. Mm. The fact that I know that these people knew that I had been wrongfully in prison for his crime. And they went about life like it was like, like my life meant nothing. I uh, started uh, advocating for myself. I would go to the News American, the Afro-American newspaper up on, Cal on Charles Street, the ACLU, and talk with all these people, explain them what had happened, and show them my paperwork and stuff. And everybody was so understanding and sympathetic to what had happened, but wasn't nothing that could be done now. So I went uh, to a, I was, to be honest with you, I was homeless. I was standing out on the street. One morning, I saw this lady, white lady, trying to move these boxes out of this car up on, uh, I think it was Maryland Avenue. Yeah, Maryland Avenue. And, uh, and she was trying to take these boxes into this building. And it ended up being a lady by the name of Mary Jo Davis. And the program she had was called Merlin New Directions, right? Mary Jo and I talked for a while and I explained to her that I just got out of prison. I had been wrongfully convicted. And she actually invited me in and I sat down with her and drank a cup of coffee and I had my paperwork in my pack and my little pad and stuff, and I showed it to her. And she said she wanted to make a phone call and she would get back. She would call me, but she would come right back in with me. Finally, she made the phone call. She came back and she told me, "I got somebody that's going to help you. You know, navigate the problems that you have with the state, and we're going to assist you." She introduced me then to her husband, a fellow by the name of J. Edward Davis, who had a law firm up on Washington Avenue in Towson facing the courthouse. Right. When I met Mr. Davis, Mr. Davis explained to me that he could not really represent me, but he could help me. He was a lobbyist in Annapolis and his law firm represented the, the Correctional Officers Union. They were, his law firm actually was the main law firm that represented the whole uh, Public Safety and Correctional Services Officers Union. Oh. He, uh, I explained to him that I was familiar with the law about the compensation that I had found it. And he asked me, would I write it up? And I said, yeah, I did. I sat in his office and used his typewriter and wrote it up. And he, I, I submitted it. And he said, I'm going to show you something, Leslie. And, uh, you know, this is a lesson that I, that I hope everybody understands, you know. When I submitted it, 
it was denied within a week, requesting the full unconditional pardon and to be placed on the agenda for the Board of Public Works. Can I ask a question, please? Yes. I don't want to disturb you, but you submitted it yourself? I submitted it, and within a week, that 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 file, well, I did it that early, that Monday morning. Uh, that Friday, I got a letter back advising me that the my request was denied, mm. and I would have to wait five years from the date of my actual release before I could apply for a pardon. As far as compensation, I didn't get anything back. For some reason, I think I ended up down at, what is it, it used to be James Brown radio station, WEBB, up in Walbrook Junction on that corner. And I was talking to the, the, the announcer there. And he actually put me on air and let me talk about my story. Michael Oleska had written and published a story in January 1985 about my wrongful imprisonment. Uh, I think he, at that time, he was talking about me going to New York and to, to talk to the people from 60 Minutes and Hurricane Gloria came and I ended up being stranded up there out in Hurricane Gloria. Gloria. But uh, Mr. Davis actually got me um, a meeting with the attorney general's office about my case. And they talked about it for a while. The next day I know I get a, a phone call from a, a man by the name of Perrin Mitchell, who was a congressman. And I remember writing to Perrin when I was in Hagerstown because he was involved in a kid's case named um, what was this boy's name? Oh my God, he was in prison with me. He was charged with killing two police officers up in, um, what's that, off Bowie, Maryland, up in Prince George County. <laughs> Terrence Johnson, I'm sorry, God forgive me, I'm sorry, Terrence. Uh, Terrence Johnson was a kid that was, I think Terrence was 14 at the time when he was accosted by two police and him and his brother were being beaten up and abused by the police in uh, Upper Marlboro, Metal, Marlboro, Maryland. And he grabbed one of the handguns from the officers and started firing and ended up killing two of the officers up there. Uh, Pine was involved in his case. It was a great big national cry through the NAACP, uh, ACLU, people from the justice organizations all flocked to his case. And uh, Pine told me at the time, because of him being a member of Congress, he couldn't intervene in a state matter. But he sent a driver to come pick me up this particular day, and he did a news release that he, was, he had actually contacted the governor and submitted my information to the governor for the governor to grant me a full unconditional pardon. I think maybe a week later, Governor Harry Hughes sent me a letter advising me that he granted me a full unconditional pardon for the 10 years I spent wrongfully in prison. So Governor then, Harry Hughes? Uh, Governor Harry Hughes, right? 
with Governor Harry Hughes. That was August of uh, 1986. And I then petitioned the, submitted a petition for compensation to the Board of Public Works asking to be compensated because Governor Hughes had allocated, from my understanding, a million dollars in the budget to pay me for the 10 years I spent wrongfully convicted. But there was an election and Governor Hughes went out of office and Schaefer was, was then, who used to be the mayor for Baltimore City, then became the governor of Maryland. Governor Schaefer was the very same person that I used to go down to City Hall to meet with, try to meet with, to talk about my case. And he always reminded me of the letter that he sent me saying that the court doesn't make errors, you know? Um, when he actually was inaugurated, the first thing that he did was make a decision to take $800,000 out of the budget, the general emergency fund, which was the fund that, that Harry Hughes had allocated the million dollars and to pay me for the 10 years I spent wrongfully imprisonment. Schaefer purchased what they called the executive yacht, which sat in the Annapolis Basin and rusted. And then they asked me to come before the Board of Public Works to speak before that board, which I did. And, you know, I, to be honest with you, I felt as though it wasn't about the state of Maryland. It was between me and Schaefer then, because I was aware of his attitude towards people of color. I had been exposed to this in personal meetings with these people and knew that as an African-American, black, whatever label you want to place upon it, he didn't give us, he didn't give up at all, you know? Um, I had individuals from the community, senators and delegates who claimed that they were about then uh, uh, advocating for the injustice that was done only to meet with me and tell me they needed me to clean their backyards and stuff for me to give them help, for them to help me litigate my case against the state of Maryland. You know, uh, these were prominent, reputable, so-called people of the community that represented the inner city neighborhoods, like up there off of Emerson Avenue and Lafayette and all that. Okay, well, you're welcome to say names now. This is not, you don't have to say people. So whatever you want to say, you say. This is this is your story. Really, really I, you know, I mean, I, I don't I don't get into the names and stuff anymore because a lot of those okay. people are dead. You it. know, I, honestly, you know, and I'm still here. And you're still here, yeah. I'm still here, yeah. God is good. You That's know? something to say, a lot of those people who, uh, that's I mean, something to say. A lot of those people saying retarded your growth, but they're gone. Yeah, you know, you know that's mm -hmm. that's why I don't have the hurt that I had before. 
I do, I do want to uh, get us oriented in terms of time. I know okay. that you, the 86 is when you uh, got the letter from the governor granting right. your unconditional pardon. Um, yeah. And wh where are we at this point in your suit in the, for compensation? What year is this? That's, we're talking about like 85, 86, 87. I was then living in a house on Emerson Avenue that was vacant. Me and another fellow had actually moved in the house, fixed it up, had running electric and water. We run an electric off of the pole outside with one of them orange electrical cords right on the corner of Monroe and Emerson. Right. Um, I did an interview with a fellow by the name of Al Sanders from Channel 13 at the time there. And Mr. Sanders remembered my story from when I was playing basketball. And he set up an interview for me to play a one-on-one -on -one with a guy that was ranked, I think, second in collegiate basketball in the whole United States, right? At 28? You were 28, 28 now, right? 28. And they took me and this guy up in Emerson Village back behind the shopping center where they had built these apartments at, and they had a brand new basketball court back there. And he asked me and the guy to play a one-on-one, -on -one, and they had the, the guy recording it. He filmed us doing playing a one-on-one -on -one for 10 points. And I beat this kid two, two times, two games, right? But then after, I, after the game, he uh, interviewed that fellow and asked that fellow, what did he think about my plan abilities? And God told him that I was great, I was awesome. He would love to learn more from me and all this. That interview was shown on the news that afternoon. I never knew that that fellow that I was playing was a kid by the name of Len Byers. Right? Wow. Uh, Mr. Al Sanders took that film to the coach of the Baltimore Lightning's basketball team, which was an ABA basketball team that Baltimore was, was getting ready to start up. And he showed it, let them see it. And they said that they would like for me to try out for the team. The only thing that they felt might have been a problem was my age at that time, right? For insurance purposes. But my ability to play ball was definitely one. That I, I'm not, that, I, you know, I realized that, that that was taken from me. That can never be, you know, that can never be given back. Uh, then the Board of Public Works, after my appearance there at their hearing, I was awarded a quarter of a million dollars in compensation payable over six years. They spread it out over a six year period of time. And it was explained to me that I would pick my checks up in Annapolis once a month. They initially gave me a payment of $15,000 where I was able to go out and get an apartment, apartment for myself, living in Tall Oaks at Lock Raven and Hillen. Uh, during the time that, that I was living up there, I was trying to get the state to own up to the other part of the agreement was to help me get counseling, to help me get assistance with uh, 
a trade, and I wanted to go back to school and get more, uh, earn a, a higher degree. I had a bachelor's at that time. I had attended Towson State and picked up the last eight credits I needed to get my bachelor's degree in sociology, and I was also certified paralegal. But when I, every time I go to the state contact that they gave me from the governor's office about the jobs, nobody would ever talk to me. They would always give me the runaround. And I didn't have the assistance that the other individuals who have been wrongfully convicted of to get help from those organizations. Everything I had to do, I did on my own. You know, I remember sitting in uh, the secretary's office of the human resources down at 300 East Preston Street for the state of Maryland for hours, waiting to have a meeting with this man and then they tell me that it was a conflict and I would have to come back another day. So I started looking for employment in other areas, but every time that I would apply for something, the conviction for the uh, wrongful conviction would come up. I had received in 1986 a expungement order signed by a judge by the name of Edgar P. Silver for the Circuit Court for Baltimore City. That was the first one. When I contacted the clerk of the court in Baltimore City about it, the expungement clerk told me that they wasn't putting it through because they thought the judge made a mistake. I contacted Kurt Smoke's office, I believe maybe a month later, I got another letter telling me that and another, a second expungement order had been issued. And I shouldn't have a problem with the conviction. Um, you know, my, I then entered, I was dealing with a young lady that I had met and my, and she became pregnant with my first child, my son, Jamal. Um, you know, I, I'm not, I ain't pointing fingers and I ain't trying to make excuses because what it is happened. I didn't have experience or understanding to realize that life had changed greatly in that 10 year period of time. People's morals and values were different totally from when I went to prison. Whereas we have respect and, and, and respect for one another, there was nothing like that. A lot of people didn't have those same values and morals. A young lady that I ended up being in a, in a relationship with, I didn't find out she was married until after my son was born. And they told me that I was not able to see my child because she had a husband, you know? And uh, I then went back to Mr. Davis, talking to Mr. Davis about what was going on. And he said to me, he said, Leslie, you still growing. You don't know it's what the world is about now. Uh, we end up going to court. I end up getting legal custody of my son, Jamal. There was issues that uh, he had when he was born because I didn't know what kind of signs to look for because certain kind of lifestyles I was never involved in or aware of. I didn't know what substance abuse was. 
I didn't know what it was when somebody was addicted to drugs because I hadn't been, you know, around that. I hadn't been acclimated to know what to look for. A mm -hmm. uh, young lady I was involved with, she had a severe substance abuse problem. She hit it very well. She was considered a well-known booster in Baltimore City and so forth. But uh, out of our relationship came my son. And I took care of him as best as I knew, you know. And I raised him. So life moved on and I'm still fighting to get employment. I'm getting jobs, but the jobs I'm getting are menial jobs. Jobs that I felt didn't pay me what I felt I was worth, you know, what I, what I went to school for and trained for and was fighting for. Um, in 1990, I notified the state of Maryland I was gonna file a civil suit against them because that conviction came up. When I took Jamal and left from Maryland and went to New York to be employed up there at a pharmaceutical place, and they denied me employment based on the wrongful conviction records. The state, he, Judge, I mean, uh, Safer forwarded my letter to Bishop Robinson, who was the Secretary of Public Safety and Correctional Services, and Bishop Robinson sent me a letter saying that he had sent the information to the director of sieges, which is called Central Repository in Maryland, where all criminal records are held at and assimilated. They said that the director sent me a letter saying that another, a, a third expungement order had been issued and had been complied with. So I got three separate expungement orders by three separate judges signed at three separate times during the course of me being home. And still, I'm thinking, you know, I'm going to be able to move forward past this. But I wasn't. Everywhere I turned, I was being turned away for employment. And the people from the State Department that I was told supposed to help me wasn't helping, you know? And that was an agreement that was reached between the state of Maryland and myself in 1987 that was signed by the governor, the controller, and the treasurer for the state of Maryland, which made it a legal binding contract, you know? And I, I'm, and, but I'm not supposed to speak about those things in the manners because I'm not smart enough. That's what I feel was the attitude that they were presenting to me. I wasn't smart enough to pursue this. So, so my question is, you only got the actual money, but none of the actual attachments to your- I got none of that. You didn't get I your counseling, you didn't get your schooling, you didn't get- I didn't get the schooling. I paid for my schooling. I, well, I didn't, be honest, I didn't have to pay for the schooling because Mr. Davis and his, I went to school with Mr. Davis' daughters and son at Towson State University for free. Mm. Yeah, that's how strong the guard was. I, I, I can speak for that because I know it. So that, you know? So that, was, that was a gift to you, but that all of the good. other attachments per the state in your agreement, 
was, was not, not not get because no, there was no follow follow up, no teeth. You had no way to receive those services. Am I correct? Nobody that I went to was willing to go against the state of Maryland to try to enforce the agreement that I had with them. Period. To this day, it's been the same. Okay. Um. In 1992, I contacted the state about the the criminal convictions not being expunged. Um, They gave me that third expungement order. 1998, I went back to them again and I explained I was going to sue the state of Maryland because I had been deprived of another job. You know, I've been constantly getting this back and forth, but I just gotten fed up and frustrated. And I said, I'm gonna write it up myself and, and file it. And then some, give it to the, the media because I felt that's the only way I could get any kind of assistance. Right. You know, mm-hmm. through people knowing what happened. So I filed a complaint and demand against the state treasurer's office. And I obtained the services of an individual by the name of Delegate Ken Montague. Ken Montague, Kenneth Montague, Mm -hmm. represented the 40, I think the ward uh, over there in East Baltimore by 43rd Street, uh, 39th, and that area up in there. In that area was a man by the name of uh, Martin O'Malley, who became the mayor for Baltimore City. Mr. Montague explained to me that he knew Martin O'Malley, uh, that Martin O'Malley was getting ready to become the mayor for Barmer City and so forth, and he lived in his jurisdiction. Everything would be all right, Leslie, don't worry about it. You don't have to stress. He claimed that they had talked about it and it was going to be resolved and so forth. I actually was awarded an additional $50,000 from the state of Maryland for the, for the non-expungement of the criminal records over all these years. That was in 98. That was in 98, and this was given to you by Martin O'Malley? Yeah. I got the uh, uh, $50,000 from the state of Maryland. I settled with them because I had custody of my children and we was moving from one place to another. You know, so now you I have children? So wait a minute. Yeah. Now- now, now I got chillings. <laughs> I'm a chillin', you know? So and, how many uh, children do you have now? Well, I got four. I got custody of four. And I got five more with another young lady I was married to. But we we separated, we separated then divorced. Right? So you had four children that you were actually living in your house with you? That I was raising myself from got infancy. It. Got it. And, uh, I got the fifty thousand dollars. I moved. I was in a house in East Baltimore, off of Fayette Street on Rose Street. Uh, I met with a fellow by the name of Senator John Jeffries, who was the secretary for the Department of Labor, License, and Regulation at eleven hundred North Utah Street. Right now, John Jeffries actually met with me. And I showed him, you know, the documentation, the agreement with the state and all that had been made back in 1987. 
at that Board of Public Works hearing with Governor uh, Schaefer, Louis Goldstein, and Nancy Cop, the controller for the state of Maryland, that they all signed off on. And he had me meet with a guy named Carlos Fears, who identified all the state positions that I qualified for. And it was a real long list of them, right? So they had me apply for a position, which was an employment placement specialist for Dollar, Department of Labor License Regulation, and I was hired. I started working for them in 1998. I became the highest placement uh, placement specialist for Department of Labor License Regulation. Began to win awards and commendation citations for placing people who were considered at risk hard to place. People who were just coming home from prison, people who were considered marginalized, just coming out of social service, receiving social service into the workforce and so forth. And, you know, I, I believe the things was picking up and my life was moving forward, you know. My kids was doing good, they was growing, they was thriving, they was in school. You know, I became part owner of a bail bond business that sat directly across the street from Baltimore City Jail called, you know, it's, it's like, no matter what, something gotta come up. 2004, I go to work and that day I remember the security chief was walking around. His name was Mac. We call him Mr. Mac. And he came to me, he said, Leslie, he said, look, man. He said, you know we do random checks of all state employees. He said, that's any, any agency. He said, we run them through. He said, and your name came up and we ran your name and you got a warrant for your arrest. That's been issued. I'm like, what are you talking about? I thought at first I thought he was joking, you know, because you know, Mr. Mack was playing a lot of games and stuff, but so I was like, let me bump your head, but so he said, uh, no, that's he said it is seriously he said, and I need you, you know, to you know, I mean this man put his job in line to help me. You understand? You know, and he told me that and I contacted a lady that was the director of the public defender's office that I'd become friends with. She ran the Baltimore City office. She was a felony chief uh, trial officer in Baltimore City. Her name was Olivia. We call her Libby. And uh, she, she checked it and said that it wasn't a rust warrant issue for me for, she said, but they couldn't see what it was. They didn't have it in there. So I said, okay. I said, well, so what you you know think I should do? She said, well, if you're going to surrender yourself, Leslie, make sure you got an attorney with you. We can provide you with one, or you can get your own. So I said, okay. I talked with Ken Montague, and he said he would he would work, work with me. And I actually uh, surrendered myself to these people because I wanted to get this matter resolved. I didn't know what it was about. When I actually turned myself in, I felt real crazy. I'll be honest with you, I had to get drunk first because I couldn't believe 
after going through what I went through in prison for 10 years, I was willing to trust these people by turning myself in. And then the other part that hurt me most of all was that I didn't have anybody to care for my kids when I did this. So I actually, you know, they, they told me, well, Leslie, it ain't really nothing. You're going to go in. You ain't got no criminal record. You'll be able to make bail. You got a bail bond. You part on the bail bond business. You'll be able to post your bail and get right out. I took $80,000 in bail bonds with me in case they gave me a, a ransom, which I figured, you know, I, I don't know. I just, my, my life, because of what I've been through and seeing how this judicial system is, I, I've had to be prepared. And, uh, my daughter, my youngest child was four, that's a legend. My son, Diamante, my youngest son, he was seven. My other daughter, Andrea, she was 11. She had just won the Ben Carson Award for being the highest academic child in Baltimore City in, middle, in elementary school. And my oldest daughter, Alicia, she was 12 at the time. They were placed in foster care, right? Never been away from it. And uh, I, they took me before the court commissioner for the bail review. And she asked me, and never forget, she said, Mr. Vass, how you doing today? I said, not good at all, I'm dealing with this. She said, well, let's see if we can get this done. She explained to me that she needed to know if I had any kind of felony convictions. Have you ever been convicted of a felony? I said, no. She said, you sure? I said, I'm positive. She said, Mr. Vass, she said, I know your name. I know your history. I know your story. She said, I'm so sorry. She said, but she took her computer screen and turned it around and showed me that that wrongful conviction was still on the record. She said, because of the charge that you're facing, you're denied, you, I can't give you a bail. She says, no way I can go around, it won't allow me to do it in the system. So you're gonna be held without bail. And I was like, what are you talking about? I said, here, here's the paper. I, here's, the, here's the pardon document. I took the pardon document. I had folded up all this information that I brought with me. And I held it up to the, to the glass for her to see it. And she said, I know all about your story, Mr. Vass. She said, I'm just sorry that, that it comes, that I have to be the one that this falls on. She said, but I can't release you. She said, so you're gonna be held with no bail. I was totally devastated. And this was the judge, judge is saying this to you. No, that was that. That was the court commissioner at court the commissioner. Because the okay. they ran your stuff and then they saw the stuff on your record, right? Okay. They saw the armed robbery come up on the record. Now, for, for, for the bail review, it was a video bail review heard held the next morning. I, one second, one second. Um, we didn't establish what the warrant was for. First degree attempted murder. To hear the third and final act of the Leslie Voss story, make sure you subscribe to blackboxradio.com 
or wherever you are listening right now, subscribe, turn on your notifications so you can hear the final installment of this incredible story. That's blackboxradio.com, B-L-A-K-B-O-X-X-R-A-D-I-O.